And it was only actually the one person I met, he shared at a party where lots of folks were drinking, myself included, and he wasn't. And I couldn't believe that he was the life of the party, having fun and not drinking. So I asked him, why aren't you drinking? And he said, oh, I've been in recovery for 25 years. He's an academic in recovery, having fun, something I didn't think was possible. And that conversation changed my life. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Welcome back to another episode of From Darkness to Life and Our Collective Journey podcast. We're at uh, the Plugged In Media Network studio like we always are on Thursdays. And when I say we today, it's very strange because I'm the only one in here, which is rare. Usually it's packed full of people, but uh, yeah, our sponsor, Nicole Davis Realty, we are very grateful for that. And with that, I can't wait to get into this episode with our guest, Dr. Victoria Burns from the UFC in Calgary. Um, welcome. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Yeah. Awesome. I, I came across your social media and then some of the cool articles and, and whatnot that have been done on your story and what you have going on at the UFC and the whole recovery community and the, the recovery aspect that you're bringing to the UFC Um is something that really lights me up. That's fascinating. I have listened to a few other podcasts about recovery colleges and whatnot down in the States and on campuses down there. And it's just fascinating. And I can't believe that uh, we don't have more of them here in Canada, but it sounds like you're spearheading something in Calgary. That's it's pretty new in Canada. Is it not? It is. Yeah. It's uh, the first collegiate recovery program actually started uh, in 2019 in Canada at UBC nice. um, and collegiate recovery programs have been around since the 1970s. Actually uh, the first one started at Brown university in the United States. And there's about 150 across the United States. Now the one at U Calgary is unique because we are adopting a whole campus approach I am a faculty member in recovery, and this idea actually came from my own lived experience negotiating a recovery identity as an academic and being largely in the closet. And that was because folks advised me, you know, not to tell anyone I was in recovery because that could mm-hmm. that could really threaten my position. And I didn't want to do anything that would potentially prevent me from getting a job or keeping a job because I had worked really hard to get where I was. So Mm -hmm. um, I stayed silent. But as a result of having some supportive people along my journey, this project started really in 2018 to create a recovery-friendly campus. And yeah, it's really the first of its kind. So we're really excited about it. Yeah, no kidding. That is so amazing to hear. Um, when you talk about, you know, when I had read some of this in one of the articles that I had uh, explored around some of your story, Victoria, and when you talk about, you know, some of the, I guess it's stigma. When you talk about some of that related to, you know, your journey through substance use and then what your experience is since you've been in recovery, um, that's something I find fascinating because that's something I've experienced myself. I'm in long-term recovery and, and I still run into stigma. It's just a different kind now, now that I'm in recovery, we can be stigmatized around that as well, which is, it just blows my mind when I hear that. Yeah. I didn't anticipate when I, when I got sober in 2013, that the recovery stigma would be in many ways more severe than addiction stigma. Mm -hmm. And this has a lot to do, I think, with my drug of choice, which is alcohol. Uh, Alcohol is notorious for being the only drug you have to repeatedly justify not taking. Right. And I found that when I struggled, when I was in the depths of my addiction, as a long-term student, I got sober during my PhD and... 
the use was not that it didn't stand out, I think, in this in the way that that it should have. And that's because of binge drinking culture in the university mm-hmm. and the normalization of blacking out um, things that really aren't normal, but it depends on the context, right? And that was something I could not imagine myself living a life without alcohol because yeah. alcohol for so many years had been my currency for belonging. Mm. And that's how I used it to cope as well, to cope with trauma, what I now understand to be trauma, uh, just to kind of get through life. And it was, there was definitely stigma for reaching out for help, but there wasn't that much stigma around being a blackout drinker or passing out in a ditch or things that you think that there would be a lot of stigma associated with. Right. And then when I stopped drinking, I found that like I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, I was told not to tell anyone Like this was something very shameful to actually be a productive member of society, uh, having a finally a community, things that honestly, like my recovery is the thing I'm most proud of in my life. And it got to a point where I just couldn't hide anymore because it was negatively affecting my recovery. Uh, when we moved to Calgary from Montreal in 2017, I was teaching at UCalgary and I'm also a social worker. So mm-hmm. part of my code of ethics is, is, you know, social justice. I see actually not speaking out as a social justice issue mm-hmm. being silenced because people are dying because people are living, you know, in, in silence and hiding and not getting help. Sure. And I felt like I was perpetuating the stigma um, like a hypocrite and, and by not really using opportunities in the classroom to talk about lived experience. You know, as, as social workers, we do diversity hires. We have folks part of the LGBTQ plus community who teach, who speak from their own lived experience. Um so why not for recovery? So basically what happened is I was prepared to, to leave my job if, if, if it came to it, because I, I was also doing research around um, addiction, harm reduction. I was working on a managed alcohol program for formerly homeless older adults in Calgary. And I felt like I was holding back an important perspective. And I ended up meeting with my dean, um, at the time who was very supportive. And I said, look, this is something that I've been advised not to talk about because it might prevent me from getting tenure, which is a permanent position. And he, he really said, you know, Victoria, this is, I will make sure personally that this does not stand in the way of you getting tenure. And I kind of give you green light to share your experience where you see it as appropriate. Right. Because I think that's also depending on people's roles, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be shouting it from the rooftop that you're in recovery Mm -hmm. or in a classroom. But for me as a social work scholar and educator, it felt like something that, could really benefit students. Uh, and, you know, I just wish during my career, my, my, as a student that I had a faculty member, I had not met anybody in recovery. I was a student for 13 years. Um, and it was only actually the one person I met in 2011 when, or sorry, in 2013, before I got sober, that um, was a colleague from, uh, McGill, mm-hmm. who is from the States. His name's Ben. I talk about him. I've written about him. He's like an angel to me because he shared at a party that he invited me to, a Halloween party where lots of folks were drinking, myself included, and he wasn't. And I couldn't believe that he was the life of the party, having fun and not drinking. So I asked him, why aren't you drinking? And he said, oh, I've been in recovery for 25 years. Wow. And he's from the States. And I think that just the, the people talk about it a bit more openly. It was something I, you know, I had never met someone and he planted the seed. Cause I thought here's someone who's, who has what I want. Like yeah. I didn't know that language at the time, but he's an academic in recovery 
having fun, something I didn't think was possible. (laughs) And that conversation changed my life because he had the courage to quote unquote, recover out loud Mm -hmm. in a private conversation. Wow. I, I can't. Yeah. That is something that, you know, that's kind of how our collective journey, how our nonprofit, how we got started two years ago was recovering out loud. We had a contagion of suicides and the listeners who are listening know this story because we talk about it lots, but we had a contagion of suicides going on in Medicine Hat and we knew that there was more that we could do. You know, there was a lot of uh, talk behind the scenes of maybe some substance use disorders and whatnot, but we just started thinking, you know, we got to, we got to share our stories, our lived experience, you know, cause when I got to the end of the line, when I tried to take my life in 2015, it was, uh, you know, there could have been the neon flashing lights with all the crisis numbers and the, all the semicolon tattoos and all that stuff. But when I was sitting in that truck at the end of my day, nothing was going to, it was so far gone. And I was at peace with that decision. So we had talked about, you know, sharing our stories and let's see if we can help somebody resonate two, three, four, six months prior to them getting to where we got, because that's the piece I think that's missing everybody. You know, when I was out there and perhaps yourself, I thought I was alone. Nobody's going to understand this. I'm sure not going to talk about it because man, I'll be the, you know, the laughing stock of the, my business, all these things. And I just didn't want to show that weakness. And I didn't want to believe that I was an addict and I was an alcoholic and all these things. And man, what you talk about there, that recovering out loud and and these messages of hope. And I I think that's the piece that we as a society and as a community need to work on, you know, to, to show people that this is what recovery can look like. Recovery can be fun. Like your friend being the life of the party, right? And he's sober. That's such an unbelievable and unattainable thing. When I was trying to get sober, I'm like, what am I going to do for the rest of my life without alcohol? Yeah, no, I relate a lot. It, I thought my life would be over. I thought it was, I would be boring, a teetotaler. (laughs) I judged people harshly who didn't drink. So because I didn't have any role models, I grew up in an alcoholic home um, from the Maritimes. People drink like there was always, it wasn't something I didn't know any (laughs) people who didn't drink. Right. So I didn't want to be the social pariah (laughs) of the group. Oh yeah, for sure. I can, oh man, I can remember the first wedding I went to in recovery and looking around that wedding thinking, you mean everybody here doesn't get trashed? I thought for sure that everybody got trashed at weddings like I did, (laughs) right? Lots of people don't get bombed like we used to do. Yeah, but that's what I, yeah, it's funny. I realize that now yeah. and you can actually go on vacation and enjoy every day of it and not have two that you're nursing a hangover and feeling <laughs> like total crap. For you sure. Know? Things like that or building that into your schedule of, you know, knowing that you're going to have to be recovering from last night's use. Yeah. Do not um, schedule it, anything before 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um yeah, it's because people are hiding in church basements, I think, or, you know, it's starting to shift. Like even yeah. since I got sober, there's been more of the, I guess what they call the positive sobriety movement, mm-hmm. uh, where people uh, were seeing more mocktails and, you know, marketing around everything. And there wasn't anything like that uh, nine years ago, really, yeah. that I knew of. For sure. Yeah. I don't remember seeing any of that stuff back then. <clears throat> Um, I, I really enjoy when you're talking about, you know, you're, you can tell that how passionate you are about your recovery and just recovery in general. And, and, uh, would you be cool with telling us a little bit more about how this recovery movement happened at the UFC and, and what that looks like, you know, what your ideas were around that and how that looks today? Sure. So this, uh, I started actually doing some research, around disclosure. I'm, I'm fascinated with disclosure and, and what that looks like and got a small grant from our campus mental health strategy in 2018 to do a study on uh, addiction or disclosure experiences amongst faculty members. And uh, myself and two colleagues, we interviewed two, uh, sorry, service providers 
So mental health professionals and also most of the deans of all the, there's 16 faculties. So we had uh, a pretty good sample of the deans to talk about, you know, our faculty members, is this something you're aware of? Um, we know from the campus mental health strategy and research that medical leaves are on the rise or stress leaves and mental health is the number one offender there. And we know from other statistics that substance use is part of that, although it's not reported, right? right? So there were um, there were only three disclosures, and this was out of over 300 years of service wow. amongst the interviewees. But other mental health disclosures were on the rise. So lots of folks were coming forward with depression diagnoses, anxiety, different things, uh, PTSD even, but addiction still has that double stigma that yep. it's not talked about, even though we know from other statistics that it's real and it's happening. What was interesting, though, is there were critical incidents happening uh, on campus. So professors showing up to class intoxicated, uh, DUIs, things like that. Mm -hmm. But they weren't getting the help before it was too late. One professor actually had passed away. Um, So... This gave a little bit of evidence around, you know, the, the, the silence and the need that there's critical incidents happening, but no one's talking about it. So I went to uh, talk to some of the powers that be at the university and had a proposal around starting a collegiate recovery program. And this is like speaking a different language, right? Because unless you've had direct lived experience with recovery, it's hard to understand. Like, it's even hard for us, I'm sure, of like, what is this thing? Like, how do you? So um, I worked quite closely um, with the founder, Sarah Fujak from UBC, to who worked as our consultant and looked at how they got their program going in BC. Uh, also worked with uh New Hampshire has the recovery friendly workplace program that was started by Governor Sununu uh, and that's something we really wanted to integrate the faculty piece because of the work the research I had been doing um so eventually we we got a grant last summer from the city of Calgary there's the mental health and addiction strategy and that allowed me to hire a coordinator nice. uh so that was, you know, we're getting the ball rolling and the pillars of collegiate recovery program, the three evidence-based pillars are peer support, a physical space for dropping in and paid dedicated staff. So I was kind of doing this off the side of my desk. Uh, now we had a coordinator part-time. We didn't have a physical space yet and we did have peer support meetings. So that started. And we also uh, built relationships with student wellness. So Yasmin Nashi, who's the harm reduction advisor, she came on board and was like our liaison to student wellness services. And we were doing some prevention work there. And edu- she does a lot of education work. So that was good. And then we had Jessica Hinton, who um, was on the staff wellness side. So we had some a team built. And then Andrew Zito, who's the director of the campus mental health strategy, was and has been a, a strong supporter. So that that was going we're getting the ball rolling we got a website on uh, under uh student wellness mm-hmm. at the university of calgary we started our instagram we're getting the word out about recovery on campus and we we're looking to continue our six month pilot from the city and myself and andrew had met with some folks from Alberta Health and looking for proposals we were actually looking to continue the program from private some people who might be willing to donate. Mm-hmm. Another aspect is that there's a scholarship program for students in recovery, and that's a big part of our program, and also an award program for faculty and staff in recovery. Very cool. Yeah. And there's also a lot of collegiate recovery programs have recovery housing or substance-free housing. So to make a long story short, post-secondary was recognized as a gap in the recovery-oriented system of care And we were approached by Alberta Health to put together a proposal to help the 26 post-secondaries across Alberta, including Medicine Hat, who's actually one of our 
champion schools get collegiate recovery programs off the ground. So we got a $500,000 grant for one year. And what we're doing is we have a $50,000 out of that scholarship fund, which is province-wide. We have $3,000 seed grants for each of the 26 post-secondaries to do a recovery-oriented event. So some of the schools are doing a sober St. Patty's Day party, uh, a mocktail kind of mixologist coming in, different things like that. Just raising awareness about Mm -hmm. a different type of lifestyle and then... uh, some are doing some swag, some want to start up, you know, some social media. And we had a retreat with the 26 at University of Calgary in September. And this is something that has been gaining momentum. We're building relationships with the 26. And yeah, so that's kind of where we're at now. Um, and we're hoping, and I, I'm an optimist, but we're going to continue this work after the one year because it's so sorely needed and people are excited about it as well. Oh, absolutely. I can see why. Cause that, you know, this is something, well, you said it and I couldn't agree more. This is a big gap in that recovery oriented systems of care. Absolutely. The post-secondary, well, the world wide, right? I, I went to university myself in, in North Dakota and it was the same thing, right? There was no talk of recovery. It was, you were shunned almost if you didn't drink. I played on a hockey team down there and it was, yeah, we wore it as a badge of honor, how blackout drunk you could get. So I put myself back in those shoes now after being in recovery. And if I was in recovery in that post-secondary Institute, where does a person go? What do you do to, to find your people? So yeah, amazing. Exactly. So, oh, sorry. You, I was going to say uh, one of the things that we're excited about at the U Calgary is uh, we've been working with residents and we are going to, it's, nothing is officially signed yet, but there's uh, movement and momentum building um, to have a wing of, a, of one of the residences as substance free. Oh, so, wow. That's going to be our pilot. And eventually we're hoping that'll grow into something bigger. But I think that because when you think about it, right, with with um, home being one of the core dimensions of recovery and having a safe place, if you are maybe you have a solid recovery we're seeing this with folks from high school and they're scared to go to university because of how recovery threatening it is. So especially if you're an international student coming from the States or coming from anywhere and you, and you're staying in residence, like that's a huge risk factor for relapse. So we want to make sure that there's at least an option for folks who um, fit that profile. And there are many people who do and not only for um recovery but also people who don't drink or use other drugs for religious or health reasons for sure yeah absolutely and those those sober living environments yeah you you're right that you know you don't have to be coming out of active addiction or alcoholism to need a sober environment there's a lot of other reasons why people don't drink and or use drugs for that matter right and uh what a cool idea that is. That's something that, you know, my brain has never even gone to that space. And and I just think about the campus here in Medicine Hat and how we're so well connected with the campus here. And a lot of us are alumni of the campus here. And that's maybe something to explore locally as well, because I know I, being a student at the college here, you know, over the years, uh, well, there's a bar on campus. I know what the culture is, right? It's, it's starting to shift a little bit, but yeah, it would be so beneficial to so many people with that sober lens going through university, right? Or through college, just having that option and know where these places are in these safe spaces. It gives me lots to think about. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the other things that, uh, you know, I, I always go back to the piece around being stigmatized in recovery. And we, we had a guest on here just previously to you. And he said, you know, he was sharing a little bit around the same thing that he's opened up his own, uh, sober transitional housing in, in Vancouver and how the neighborhood, he had to put it out to the neighborhood. You know, this is what's happening here and held a a community kind of town hall virtually over zoom. And he 
He said, he just got lit up by people. They could not believe that you're going to have this kind of house in our community. And it's just, to me, I know, you know, nowadays, I guess, um, it's hard to believe when I've been in recovery long enough, but around that educational piece, right? People don't really know what recovery looks like or what, what it can look like. And, you know, I, re- I remember running into this when I was at treatment years ago and, and the local people out in the community were, they were shocked that there was, you know, these addicts walking the country roads. And, uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, man, it's pretty cool that I'm walking these roads right now. You should have, I would have been worried five years ago if I was out here walking these roads, right? Like when people get into recovery and they start doing the work to, to find their path into recovery, there's really nothing more powerful, I think, than that individual taking those steps and, and to have a community surround them instead of stigmatize them or being scared of them, right? So <clears throat> I guess my question is, how do you think we can, as a community, how can we start to, to reframe what recovery looks like. And, you know, I have my opinions and I know what we do here, but what, what do you think around that? I think it's a multi-pronged approach, but I think the storytelling is at the heart of it. And because unless you meet someone, you can read about, you know, stats and all this kind of thing and know that people in recovery exist. Um, Unfortunately, and this was my experience, the only picture I had of recovery was from Hollywood. And it was, you know, movies, people in church basements. uh, You know, it it wasn't a part, it wasn't something that I wanted to be a part of. It was always kind of seen in a negative light as like, you know, punitive Mm -hmm. and and that kind of thing. And, and there wasn't any kind of celebration. It didn't feel like in that way, it was, you know, drinking bad coffee out of plastic, you know, on a plastic cups. Oh, or it's terrible cups. coffee. Yeah. Terrible coffee. And yeah. So I think representation and having more people share their story is really powerful. And like I mentioned with, about the story with Ben, Recovering out loud does not need to be on TikTok or Instagram. Mm -hmm. Recovering out loud can be at a holiday party at work and talking to the person next to you. That could change someone's life. To know they have an ally, I think that's what it is, is to know we're hardwired for connection. And Mm -hmm. if we feel, and this was my experience, I felt like I would not have I would not have a tribe if I was sober because I didn't know anybody. So I would do everything. It's a survival instinct almost not to tell anyone because I don't want to be rejected. Yeah. So, but if you don't know anyone, how are you going to feel a part of? And for young people, you know, 18 to 24, it's when the brain is still developing. It's a very, it's an important time to, you know, that's often where people, there's a higher risk of becoming addicted. Um, if we can catch people and have a community and kind of break that cycle early on, just imagine the potential. Because like you said, it is a superpower, I think, to be a person in recovery. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's definitely, it's it's the best thing that, I have done in my life. Um, it's a way to build relationships. It's changed. It's allowed me to live. It's yeah. like, we hear this, but how, you know, the, the, the guidebook that I missed that day of school where they, <laughs> they taught us how to deal with emotions and, you know, yeah, not have resentments and all of those kind of things. But I think it's, it's, it's just a, a sustained effort of finding purpose and kind of getting outside of self and Mm -hmm. who wouldn't want a worker who's like that or a student. Yeah. Right. So I think that, and, and there's multiple pathways of recovery and that's something as well, like in terms of combating stigma, one of the pillars of our program is education. We are an educational institution, myself and Yasmin, my colleague co-developed a training called recovery 101 Mm -hmm. And it goes over definitions of recovery, addiction, 
it uses lived experience examples. It looks at what are some paths of recovery, uh, just demystify, answer questions. And we've done two cohorts at University of Calgary so far. We're doing four more trainings to the 26 post-secondary. So we're doing one, uh, we're doing quadrants kind of down Lethbridge and then the Calgary area, Edmonton, and then the rest of the province. So that's happening this winter because that's a part too, where people need to kind of have a foundation, I think, and understand Mm -hmm. um, kind of that it's not just one thing. It's, you know, I think there's still that, especially in folks that we work with, people still have the assumption that it's you have to have a faith-based program of recovery or you have to go to AA or you have to, you know, and nowadays there's just so many different pathways. So it's important that we raise awareness about those people. And um, yeah, I think that we also have an all pathways meeting and that we allow people to attend who are maybe questioning their relationship with alcohol or other drugs or behaviors like gaming is a big thing um, or who are actively seeking recovery or in recovery wherever folks are at, they can come and have a safe place to chat. Cause maybe yeah. you just want to be cutting down. Like we don't mm-hmm. know at this point, right. When, what people's journeys are for sure. And uh, yeah, so we just allow a safe space for that. So the peer support, again, that's the sharing story and the education is really important for, and I think just awareness as well from managers, like on the work side. And this is something that we are working on as well as, um, not is having policies and and systems in place. So if someone does reach out for help, they know they're not going to lose their job. They know that they're going to be met with compassion rather than punishment. Mm -hmm. Cause that's a real fear. That was my real fear, fear as well. So we need to make sure that higher levels of management are trained, how to work with folks who are struggling, how to reintegrate employees into the workplace and how to make events more recovery friendly. So having non-alcoholic options, um, not assuming people drink, you know, there's always jokes around the water cooler, uh, like little things like that, uh, not using stigmatizing language, not referring it to, oh, those addicts, Mm -hmm. you know, like a person Mm -hmm. with addiction, person first language um, is helpful for people to seek help and that reduces stigma because those terms are stigmatizing. Um, I know people use those words for themselves. People can call themselves whatever they want. I know people are always confused about this, but it's better. And there's actually research behind this that when professionals like healthcare professionals or other um, people in authority, especially use person first language, the person is actually receiving better care. <laughs> like it actually changes the way. So I think that that's something that we teach in our, in our course as well is the importance of non-stigmatizing language. Yeah. Very cool. And I, and I think that, you know, we have some listeners that call us out on that once in a while too. And, and that's something, you know, we're working on as well, that difference, trying to reframe some language as well. And I think that comes from most of our foundation you know, early on in our own personal journeys of recovery was through a 12 step room or something to that effect, right? Where those terms are thrown around like salutations. It's just, that's the way life is when you're in those rooms. But yeah, when you're working in the general public, I do agree that I can refer to myself however I want, but referring to other people, you have to be a little bit more person-centered and come with a different approach, I think. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Um, What does we talked about the cohorts. How, what does that look like? How many people are going through? You said you, I think you said you've done four cohorts. Is that correct? So we've done two at uh, university of Calgary. Um, We've done them with students and we are starting in February. I don't know how many people have signed up yet, but we're doing the Calgary region in first, and then we're doing Edmonton and then we're doing Lethbridge and then we're doing Northern kind of areas. Um, so hopefully we'll get, it's open to faculty, staff, and students. We're hoping we're going to get a big turnout. We're doing it online, which helps. Yeah. Um, but we're planning on doing them again because it's always hard with scheduling and everything for people to be able to attend. Related to that, um, I 
developed a course. I'm a professor with the Faculty of Social Work, and it's called Addiction and Recovery, because I recognize a huge gap in the curriculum across the university. And this was a huge gap for me, having gone through school for so many years. There were not any courses that mm-hmm. looked at recovery capital, things you know that are really important, I think, as healthcare providers to know about yeah. recovery pathways. So I created a credited course. I taught it last spring. Nice. We had some really interesting guest speakers, probably some people that you've had on here, like Steve Gaspar from Recovery Coaching. And we've, um, you know, I try to have a diverse range of and people with lived experience and yeah, so I got approved to teach it again this spring, and it's uh, it's it was a popular class, so there definitely is an interest in it. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating class. I know I would have signed up for it. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. It's funny how you know I I go back to when I enrolled in the college here in the addictions counseling program, and uh, I had a friend as well who enrolled at the same time, so both of us were in recovery, and we were very vocal about our recovery. Right, we weren't hiding. Um, we weren't showing it from the rooftops, but we were open to talking to anybody about it. And we, we still, to this day, we go back and we talk about how little we were leaned on or questioned, or, you know, I thought in a class of 30 students who are taking addictions counseling, you have two people here who have just fresh, I mean, that was seven months out of active addiction and nobody wanted to know about it. Nobody wanted to know, you know, or question what they were learning in a textbook. What is this? How does this correlate to your experience going through it? And I just thought, man, that would have been something I would have leaned on for sure or pushed into a little bit. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I love the idea that you're going around the province with, uh, with this training because huge gap. You're right. That's a huge gap. I, I, I even look at. Um, my experience in all the different post-secondaries I've been to three different ones. And yeah, there was next to none. There was none. There was nothing around this topic. Right. And I love that. It's not just about the addiction piece. It's not just acute addiction and the causes and the, and the risk factors and that, right. It's, it's more integrated with the recovery lens and let's, we all know what the problem is. We talk about that on this podcast and with people we work with all the time. And when we present in community and we all know, you know, what the problem is and we've known it for a very long time, but nobody's really shining a light on what recovery is. And that's what we really try to ramp up around here is, you know, we're not saying that addiction is the same for everybody. There's many pathways into addiction, but just similarly, there's many pathways out of addiction as well. And and that's what we're shining a light on. And I love that, uh, all the variety and the, and the vast amount of people that have been on this show to date, there isn't one story that just is the same as the next, right? There's so many pathways to recovery. And, and I can tell that, uh, that's something that you're rooted in as well, that, that multiple pathways, there isn't just one cookie cutter way. And the days of, you know, going to a 30 day treatment center that rolls out the same program for all seven or 10 participants that week or that month, you know, that doesn't work for all seven or 10 people. There's, there's gotta be some person centered approach and, and rolling out different programs that are suited towards, you know, different individuals. Cause there isn't one approach to it. That's going to fix it all or else this would have been fixed years ago. Yeah, there isn't one approach and I'm a social worker. So mm-hmm. the idea of, so is my wife, Pardon? so is my wife. Oh, yeah. She- I like her already. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the the idea of meeting people where they're at is basically what social work is about, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's about self self determination, you know, helping people find their own way, empowering people to uh, find their own way with compassion and respect, and respecting their inherent dignity. Yeah. And people going through addiction are filled with so much shame that using shame as a lever for change, it's just not going to work. Right. It's, and that's where we do try to meet people where they're at in our program. And if you're just questioning or not sure you can come, uh, have a chat. Uh, we're advocating for a physical space right now because that's something that we do not have on campus space at university of Calgary is 
very difficult to come across. So we're hoping, fingers crossed, we're in negotiations to have a space so that if a student is triggered or whatnot during class or, you know, something, they would actually, you know, be able to come have lunch, have a coffee, have a, you know, a La Croix or sparkling water, whatever, and just be able to have a safe place on campus. Yeah. Other than the bar. For sure. Because without that safe space, or we go back how many years ago, right, where this wasn't talked about, you happen to have one of those moments where something hits pretty hard or hits home. And what's the alternative? Where do you go? And and I know, based on my experience, where I would have went, right? And that's the end of my recovery because it's the easier, softer way to go back to what I'm used to doing, right? But it's not, it's not the most beneficial thing in my life to go back to that lifestyle. So having these safe spaces where somebody can go and maybe it's not even talking to anyone. It's just being around your community, your recovery community, right? Just, ah, I know I'm home here. I'm safe. Exactly. Cause I think the, the traditional way of, you know, with recovery, you mentioned the 30 days, right. Mm-hmm. But there was, there was a lot of work on the individual, which is great and, and changing how the individual reacts, learning how to deal with emotions, doing trauma therapy. But then what about changing our environments? What about, and that's where I think our program is, it, it, it takes a, a, kind of called ec- ecological perspective or a social work, a person in environment, recognizing that we need to make the environment, the everyday work and school environment of the campus more recovery friendly, because if it's not, that is setting people up for relapse. And we see it, right? You go back into with your old friends, same places, and it, we're hardwired for connection and belonging. So what's going to happen? Yeah. So we need to change. We need interventions at the level of place and also at the personal level and our systems to make sure that the person is not doing this alone and doing that great inner work. But there needs to be that people need to feel that they can navigate the world. Not saying that we need, you know, to be <laughs> people. Sh- you know, or around alcohol or whatever all the time, but can we at least make somewhat of a change in yeah. our environments to make them more inclusive for people who are in recovery? Yeah, absolutely, man. That is, that rings so true with what we're doing here as well. Right. And we, we work from a recovery capital model as recovery coaches and this and that, but one of the big things we're trying to do is, is to reframe, you know, through this podcast and through speaking at different engagements to the city and different agencies and companies is, you know, recovery is, you know, the onus is on the individual to own their recovery, but it sure makes it a lot easier if we can build a recovery community and, and have these lenses of recovery, you know, we're not asking everybody to buy in, but make it more inclusive and more, you know, just a little bit safer for people to, to reach out and to come back to work and integrate themselves back into this workforce that, you know, maybe wasn't recovery focused at the start or didn't even know about recovery. Right. But now it's like, these are some of the things that we faced in our journeys into recovery. And if we can start reframing those obstacles, you know, whether it's in the oil and gas industry or in the college, the academia world, or, you know, just about everywhere, the recovery community, it's a lot easier to recover. If you have a community that's, that's acknowledges it and, and they don't have to go out of their way to do it. But just recognize that this is, you know, this is a community problem and, and it's going to take a whole community to fix it. It's not, or to, to deal with it. It's not just on the individual all the time. Right. Exactly. And I'm really grateful to see that shift. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that that's also something that you're working on with your group because it's, it is so needed. And I think that's, that's, what's going to be a, just a game changer, yeah. I think. For people, uh, I just had a conversation with a colleague who lost a family member who was in university and they were saying, you know, I wish that it was like they'd go to treatment, go back to university, relax, go to treatment, go back to university. And we see that, right? Mm-hmm. It's that revolving door because the community just isn't there. Yeah. And treatment is a necessary step. I'm not saying that. It's just that 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 is a piece yeah. of the journey. <laughs> Right. And, um, 
as they say, like treatment center is where is discovery. You can discover a lot, but then the recovery happens out in the community. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's not the, um, well, I know in my experience, when I went to treatment, my employer, everybody thought I was fixed. You should be fixed. You've been to treatment now carry on with your life. <laughs> and it's just not how the world works. It's the world of addiction. I mean, it's not that simple. It's a complex issue and it takes the community. When you come out of that, that safe environment of a treatment center back to the real world, you know, the world keeps going around and we have to find our way in how to thrive in our recovery. We have to find our place in the world because the world's not going to change for us. And, uh, that's, yeah, that's amazing. I, I, that's the part that really drives me. And I know my partners that are involved in this and a lot of the volunteers is really getting out and starting to work in the community to talk about what recovery is and what are some obstacles that people like us, you know, people that are, have come through addiction and want to get into recovery. What does that look like? And what are the obstacles? And it's not, yeah, it's going to take a, a small army of people to get this wave going even harder and faster than it is but i we're on the top of it i think it's moving and there is change happening but i guess being the person you know that struggled with addiction i want it now <laughs> i want it right now i want it all to change now exactly yeah <laughs> i'll just give an example too of how i think insidious alcohol culture in particular is but i was about um i was almost, I think two and a half years sober. It was my PhD defense. I had not told my supervisors I was in recovery. Um, again, that culture of silence, do not in academia too. It's really competitive. Don't show any signs of weakness. Um, and I didn't want anything to jeopardize me getting my PhD. So I didn't tell anyone and had a pretty bad bottom in my, during my PhD trauma and everything, but kept that to myself, just carried on uh, as one does. And at my PhD defense, I, I succeeded and I was there and there was, you know, a group celebrating and the tradition is to pop the champagne and my supervisor and kept insisting. He's like, come on, Victoria, this is a big day. Have some champagne. You deserve it. And I said, no, thank you. Uh, come on. You could just have one glass, just yeah. one glass. Come on. And I said, no, really, I'm okay. And then he said, come on, Victoria. It's not like you're an alcoholic in front of everybody. And I just, I took the glass and I pretended to drink it just to shut him up basically. And I threw it away. But in that moment, that's where I'm saying that we need to change our environments and create more awareness because mm -hmm. A, it, it was not a place I felt safe saying like, look, I am a person in recovery from alcohol addiction. This is like giving heroin to a person yeah. <laughs> you know, who's in recovery, how dangerous that was. And there are lots of situations like that, right? Where I say you constantly have to justify and I didn't feel safe disclosing in that, in that environment. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a, a small example, but these things happen all the time. So it's like, it's not, it's up, you could have the best internal work as an individual, but you're bumping up against these types of environments. It's putting your recovery at risk. <laughs> and it doesn't mean other people can drink. Like, that's why I say this is not about prohibition. It's just about creating some a bit more space for people who cannot drink in safety or who, not only that, but as we mentioned, people who lead a substance-free lifestyle for other reasons are excluded yeah. often from a lot of these alcogenic events. Yeah. So it's something I'm very passionate about, but how can we create more inclusion for people and set people up for success? And it's not to do the work for them, but mm -hmm. again it's, it's about awareness and people don't know it's, they're not saying this. It's because it's so a part of our culture that it's just done in a, it's done in good will, right? It's not yeah. done to hurt. I knew that wasn't done to hurt me. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. That gentleman, he wasn't trying to get you to, to relapse. He didn't know. No. Right. <clears throat> and that's the thing I find that a lot, right? Not so much anymore because I don't, I don't have those, um, requirements where I work and all these other things that I have to attend functions or especially, you know, one for myself, it's pretty hard to pick up and leave when the function is for you, but having more education, I think you, you, you talked about it is that 
lack of understanding, lack of education around what this is, right? And have that recovery lens. And it doesn't, I love that you put it the way you put it about, it's not about prohibition. It's absolutely not. You can all drink if you want to, but here's, you know, here's me who is not drinking. And I, do I really need to justify that? Yeah. It seems like you always have to, right? I I can remember, I can remember back, you know, I always put myself back to when, you know, younger me, every hockey team I played on, I went to the oil and gas industry after that, everywhere I went, I surrounded myself by the same type of people that drank like I did. And that was, you know, the majority, everybody drank like I did it back then and in those different areas. Right. And, and I can't imagine what it was like for the guy who didn't drink. Well, I know what it was like. We made fun of them. We bullied them, all these things, right? Which is one of those disgusting pieces of my past that if, if I can help somebody not fall into that same place that, uh, some of those individuals, oh man, some of our past that, yeah, I regret a lot of things, <laughs> but I, it got me to where I am today. Right. And it, uh, one of the other pieces that, you know, I think that we align really nicely on is that trying to form that recovery community and, and get ahead of this, especially with, with students and younger generations, right. So that they don't fall into, um, the past that we fell into, you know, they might at some point, but at least they have a better chance not to, if they're more educated around it and it's not through scare tactics and it's not through bullying or anything like that. It's more just that lived experience piece, right? This is, I was sitting in a desk like you were at one point and I felt these feelings and this is where I ended up and this is how I coped with it. And these were the negative consequences. And with us here in Medicine Hat, we've just signed a, an agreement with the school, with all three school districts, actually. So we're going to put recovery coaches into the middle schools and the high schools here starting in the new year, just to create these safe spaces that, you know, we're not the therapists, we're not the, the counselors or the social workers that are in the schools. We're going to be the lived experience recovery coaches that create that safe space that you can just come and sit down and talk about this as somebody who's struggling because we struggled too at your age and then try to open up those pathways and those doorways to get them to where they need to go see a a therapist or a counselor or whatever they deem necessary in their journey. But, you know, we had a lot of talk around what are we going to do? What are we bringing different to this, to this arena? And it's like, well, we're not here to take anybody's jobs. We're here to get you more people, you know, the, a lot of people aren't coming to see the therapist or the school counselor because they're scared. They're stigma. They don't, they're scared of stigma. They're scared of their friends laughing at them. Their parents is a big one, right? But it's like, how can we help move these people along in the process that they don't even need, they don't even know they need this yet, but it's like, open up the door with that conversation, build that trusting connection. And then let's find out what you need in your life and what pieces you want to look at. Not this is, I'm not telling you what you need to do. You're going to find it yourself, but we're going to be there every step of the way with you. And I love that. I love that you're, you're going into the middle schools. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. We have, I, I have a lot of friends who are social workers as well. And you know, they're FSLWs and they're in the schools and they, they're talking about the, you know, the vaping and the marijuana and all the things that are going on in middle school right now and, and how this is a huge problem. And I, I honestly think that just sitting down with people that have been there at one point in their life and, and it, it, it's almost that common thread, that instant credibility, like this person gets it. They know what I'm going through, or they know some of the stressors at home because they had the same stressors when they were my age. And this is how they coped. This is how I'm coping. This is maybe the path I'm on. And let's see if we can alter that before they get too far down that path. Yeah. The lived experience is key. You know, it's, I remember when I was looking for a therapist, cause I had, I had three therapists simultaneously kind of before I entered recovery, I was trying to figure out, you know, get to the bottom, what was, what was wrong with me. And, um, I was looking for one with lived experience and I couldn't find any because yeah. of stigma people didn't disclose. Right. And I think that that was something you know, I think it's an asset yeah. to be a therapist who has lived experience of recovery, who can share that because mm-hmm. immediate, it doesn't mean you have the same experience. There's also, there's always that risk, right? That I am a, you know, I'm a white cisgendered educated woman. I do not have the same experience 
as a person of color navigating systems and things. But, you know, there is, the, it's looking for commonalities too, I think. And yeah. just knowing that when someone has gone through addiction and the depths of despair that it is, it's, it's like the shame is, I think it does dissolve to some extent. I know for me, when I meet someone in recovery, I'm like, okay, this is one of my people. They get it. For sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Even just this podcast, like oh, I yeah, never exactly. spoke to you before this and suddenly you're my people. I, I get that feeling right away. Right. And I get that. It doesn't matter what room I go into across the country at different support groups. And ah, it's one of those, ah, I'm home. This, these are my people. They get it. Yeah. Yeah. Instantly. Exactly. There's this sort of, I don't know what it is, but yeah, <laughs> sixth sense or something for sure. And that's not, you know, we say this all the time on here. That's not, and I know you come from the same viewpoint. That's not we're not trying to dismiss the quality or the, the, the benefits of a therapist without lived experience. Absolutely. They're helping hundreds and thousands of people for sure. For me and my experience though, it was that instant connection that, ah, this person actually gets, they know how I feel when they say, oh, you must be, this must feel really heavy for you. Well, they actually know because it felt heavy for them too at one point. And, and I just instantly have that bond with them a little bit quicker than I would with my other therapists. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. <clears throat> well, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. Um, what would you like to leave the listeners with? That's a pretty broad question. Yeah. It's a broad question. We're coming up on, I know this will be broadcast after the holidays, but we're coming up on, on, you know, we're in the holiday season. And I just think that it's, it's hard for one thing, if, if people are struggling with addiction, uh, with any problematic substance use or behavior, it's it can be extremely isolating. So I would say it just takes that first step to reach out to one person to make that connection and it can change everything. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that people do find that person like I found Ben because that was the one person who did normalize what I was feeling. And I hope that we have more people with lived experience of recovery who do recover out loud in whatever way that feels safe to them, because you never know how that could change somebody's life. You just, you don't know how that private conversation with one person could change and actually save their life because I know that's exactly what happened to me. And that's why I choose to recover out loud today because I can. And I just hope that other people feel empowered to do so because mm -hmm. you just never know the impact that it will have. Wow. Yeah. I don't think, uh, we could have ended on a more powerful statement because that's something I believe in wholeheartedly is maybe, you know, when we share those stories with people or we sit and have that conversation, maybe we're not meant to know the impact it has in their life. And a lot of times we'll, we may never know, but the times that I do know people have come back and, and talked to me a year or two years or three years later. And, you know, they remember that conversation like it happened yesterday. And for me, we have these conversations so often that I might not remember that exact moment, but when they come back and say it was that moment in time or what you said there that changed my perspective and changed my trajectory on my journey, it was like, holy shit, <laughs> this is worth doing every single day. Cause we never know who we're going to impact and who, whose life, like you said, we may save their life, you know, without even really knowing that we're doing that. But, and I think that's the power of this lived experience and, and sharing it and recovering out loud. And you're right. You don't have to do it on you know, 15 seconds at a time on Instagram stories or whatever. It's just being open to having that conversation when the, when the time presents itself and, and not hiding away in the basements anymore and, and just being okay with sharing your recovery with the next person. Cause yeah, you just never know whose life that's going to change. And it may not change it immediately, but the seed is planted. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's so cool. And I'm sure you have hundreds of examples as, as do we, and, and that's what gets me out of bed every day, to be honest. It's not like going to work anymore. It's, it's, I almost feel guilty some days that I get paid to do this because it's something that I would be doing anyway. 
I would be doing this just to help somebody. And I'm sure, you know, you come from the same kind of passion. I can tell from this last hour that this is who you are. And we're just, I think we're just, we found our purpose. Oh, I love it. I never get bored of hearing about recovery. Honestly, no, <laughs> just me never. Me neither. No. And I really appreciate you coming on today to share, you know, your recovery and share some of the stuff, your passions and share some of the stuff that you have going on in Calgary and, and around the province. And we will definitely keep an eye open for uh, some of the training that you're putting out and, and taking around the province. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And I, and I do think it's, it's something that's long overdue. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I hope you have a great rest of the year. Yeah. Yeah. We will down here and you guys up there. Once this cold snap breaks, things will get a lot more pleasant. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Bye. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.